0: It's like a morning, like all of a sudden it's the realisation my football life has just died. And I think that was the tears when I came off the field were more about that than losing. I think it was just the emotion of what you'd wanted to do your whole life is play football. But that was now finished and finished forever. That's where the tears came from.
1: Franklin with a hurdle, and then the long one, this will be something, it is, it's an MCG
2: special from Buddy.
0: It was shaking, it was electric, hair on the back of your neck, standing up, the only place that can produce that is the MCG.
2: What a roar. This is something to savour, something to remember for the rest of your life.
1: Hello everyone and welcome once again to At The G. am Anthony Hudson and in the build-up to this year's AFL Grand Final, a very special treat. A two-part chat with one of the game's greatest about his many achievements at the MCG, which were honoured with a statue outside the ground in 2006. Lee Matthews is one of the few champion players to also prove to be a champion coach. In this episode, we reflect on a playing career from 1969 to 1985 which saw Lee play 332 games and kick 915 goals for Hawthorne, winning four premierships and an amazing eight best and fairests. His uncompromising style earned him the nickname Lethal and he's widely considered to be one of, if not the greatest players of all time.
2: Wasn't the greatest trainer in the sense he didn't like the running part of it, but anything which had contests, etc., he was terrifying. Anything that had a ball in it, and it was competitive in nature, he was just single-minded and totally focused. But he cleaned up blokes later on because they actually stood between him and what he wanted to do, and he did it unmercifully. He was the most single-minded player. And I think if you ask me honestly now, who would you pick in your side? And without hesitation, I would pick Lee Matthews.
1: That's the voice of Lee's former teammate and coach, David Parkin. Like Parkin, Lee Matthews would go on and coach four flags. First, breaking a 32-year drought with Collingwood and then winning an amazing three in a row with Brisbane.
0: We hung on and, and won. It's funny, that, that was the one grand final and he's never do this. I was almost disappointed in the end that we hadn't played that well. Right. And I remember thinking, myself, how can you be that way? But it was something in my psyche. I don't know, even I thought we should win. I'd fell for it. I remember the Saturday night, I had trouble being jovial and really joining in the spirit of the things. I was, as I said, I was almost knocked that we didn't play well.
1: Lee's candid insights into coaching are coming up in part two. But now we begin our chat with the AFL Hall of Fame legend with his feelings towards the MCG.
0: Hello, wonderful to join you. Yeah, I was asked once many, many years ago, what's my favourite place in the world? And I said the MCG because it is brings back so many memories, both when I was a kid, well before I started playing for Hawthorne, um, and, and obviously a lot of things that have happened in the footy world. I always think the MCG is the centre of uh, the footy world in Melbourne, and as a footy nut, it's the centre of my world. That's why I always look at the MCG.
1: That's fantastic. So as a kid, that, that was the same? Footy was the centre of your world from your earliest memories?
0: Yeah, we're always a footy family, but we used to go to the local footy around the Frankston area. So we used to go, we didn't go and watch the Melbourne tunes very often. I've got a few really early memories in my childhood. It must have been early 60s, and I, so I was born in 52, so I was fairly young. We went to the MCG one day, and I think Collingwood were playing in Melbourne, I'm pretty sure. And I remember because black and white, well, it was black and white TV in those days, Hutto, of course, and it just occurred to me that Des Tunnam had red hair or reddish hair, gingery coloured hair, rather than uh, which was something that, that hit me. I remember being there when Ken Barrington and Colin Cowdrey were batting for England. Right. They scored about under two hundred in a day. It was the most boring day I've ever spent at sport, I must say. <laughs> so I never went. I never went back to the Test cricket uh, very often. Uh, and I reckon the first Grand Final was. 1965, Eston play St Kilda, and and we were behind the goals where the cheer squads current would be. the The family next door got some tickets, and uh, I can remember that uh, being at the MCG for that that particular uh, grand final. So, yeah, that, so I haven't got that many glimpses of my early childhood, uh, Hutto But I reckon the uh, MCG is an, is in about three or four of them. So you're a North supporter, weren't you? Was a North Melbourne supporter. Yep, yeah as a kid, and uh, again, as I say, we didn't we didn't come and watch the uh, the Melbourne teams play very often. We'd either watch Frankston uh, or Langrowan, which is where we're just outside of Frankston where we live. But mostly we, but every weekend, the footy, the, uh, the whole family, me and my two brothers, mum and dad, we'd all, we'd all be off to the, uh, off to the footy for the afternoon. So, uh, no, it's always a central part of my life.
1: So was it a dream as a kid that you would race the MCG one day or did that seem not real to you?
0: Oh no! I must. I, I. I always. I always wanted to play footy. I mean, I can't. Re- I can't remember the time that I didn't want to play. You know, top level footy, which at that stage, of course, was the, the VFL in, in Melbourne. Um. So no, I always wanted to uh, play that. For, I guess as a little kid, honey, you just think it's only a matter of time when I'm old enough. <laughs> but, and fortunately, the uh, the do- childhood dreams that we had, uh, yeah, largely played out when I got into my young adulthood.
1: We'll go back through those some of those dreams along the journey, along the chat but how do you feel about having a statue at the MCG in the times when when we can get to the footy there? Do you ever just happen to go past it and just check
0: that it's in good nick? Well, doing the media, I go to the MCG a lot in recent years but I've got to say I, I, I very rarely go over and see the statue. I, so It's a pretty big one so I figured it, no one can pinch it because it's actually pretty pretty heavy but i got to say, I mean I've been lucky in my football life. I've had a lot of, uh, lot of achievements but having the Honour of having your statue outside the MCG is probably the biggest single honour that's ever been bestowed on me. So I'm so thankful that uh, that that decision was made. What a decade or so ago now, and uh, it is a, it's a it's a proud proud thing for me.
1: Yeah, I mean you, you think about some of the other uh, great Australian sports people that have been on it in the same way. You, you're in an incredible company, aren't you?
0: Well, that's right. You you walk around and you see me football, cricketers, of course, and and a few footballers, and of course some of the the uh, fifty six Olympians. So uh, it's a uh, yeah, no, it's a it's a rare group, uh, a rare group of people. So yeah, no, uh, an incredible honour to be selected to uh, to have the statue there. So uh, no, I don't go and see it all that often, but every now and again I take my. Uh, grandchildren over the years but they look at it for a couple of seconds and then they want to move on so they're not terribly impressed I'm afraid.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Can I ask you when you think of the MCG broadly as a player were you an atmosphere sort of guy were you somebody who would look around and take it in and be inspired by the crowd or were you more just so focused you didn't even think about it?
0: For most of my playing career you might play Melbourne or Richmond at the MCG so you didn't play there a whole lot during during the season and but obviously you would play finals at the MCG and played plenty of those fortunately so i think the thing about the MCG is its location i mean just on the fringe it's on the suburbia you, know, you walk from the city centre i mean it's just right on the fringe of the of the city and it is the biggest stadium in australia just purely by capacity it's the only only stadium in australia that's got your 100,000 odd uh, odd capacity and and it's it's just special even when I've, I've done the media in recent years and occasionally you might be down on the boundary line before the game you know th- th- just being on it is, a, is special to me when you perform playing or when you're coaching the, uh, I guess the pressures and the tension of the contest is the thing that's that's on you not so much you're playing at the MCG but you know bottom bottom line is some of the most uh, euphoric moments of my uh, footy life have been at the MCG and a few of the downers when you've got beaten in, in big games and grand finals
2: I played on him in his first practice match as a 16-year-old and he held me off and marked the ball like a uh, seriously mature and physically strong player. And I think he kicked four on me in that very first practice match as a kid. And I must admit, from day one, I thought this was going to be a pretty special talent. He was quite reserved, very a quiet kid quite an isolate, if you like, quite inward and isolate bloke. And I was quite amazed at A, how it would be that he wasn't the normal kid who was really good at that. He usually had a bit of arrogance and personality and character that I didn't see in Lee at all at the start, just knew he could really play
0: You were a really young father weren't you from what i what i remember yes, yes no i was a, i was a father at uh, 19 so uh, i think my uh, my first child tracy was born early in uh, in 1971 february of 1971 uh, Yeah, so uh, and my other daughter fiona the, the the year after that so yes no i was a young dad which when you look back on your competitive life i mean uh, you didn't live the young single men's Youth, really, because you sort of had settled uh, settled down, in a sense, much earlier in your life than a lot of other players would have. And that probably probably helps you when, you, when I think back on it, you know, that helped the football part of my life, I think, yeah.
1: Did, did it affect you, not in a negative way, but did it affect your relationship with your teammates just because you were sort of living a different
0: life to them? Well, probably in a way. I mean, say I was married at nineteen, so you know, I was I was a father nine 20, twenty, twenty one. Most of the other young players wouldn't be probably getting you know, getting married until their mid twenties. So in in a sense you'd the getting out and about with the boys didn't yeah. happen nearly as often, I guess, because for, because of that, yeah.
1: By that age you were already pretty strong. When you're a kid, were you a big kid, obviously not height wise, but did you always mm. have that strength? What period of your life did that come?
0: Well, I was always a little kid, even by my my age group. Well, I was 100, I'm 178 centimetres, you know, as an adult. I recognised I shot up when I was 14 or 15... I, remember I played four years of under-15s. I decided to play the last year of under-15s rather than go up to under-17s because I just wanted to be a big kid in the team, if you know <laughs> what I mean. And I, I played centre-half forward uh, that year and I always think I was born to be a centre-half forward, but I never got big enough to play that way in uh, in you know later on. But uh, I, I guess I always... I mean, you didn't really do weight work until the 80s probably was when the weight programs came in. So my, basically... you. Your natural shape was your natural sh- was was your natural shape. So I guess I was always a little bit uh, short and squat, not through weight programs. So that was, quite, I guess, my my natural build. What I had was, yeah, strength of, and balanced strength. I think is a lot where you're, where you're strong in the legs, so you can change direction quickly and hi- keep your feet and be, you know, sort of really balanced, strong as much as actually being able to sort of lift weights and, and and of that nature. So that was your strength, was it? If you talk about what what was my physical attribute yeah I, I think i had good balance didn't fall over much you know i had i had a quick few steps so i wasn't i couldn't run a quick hundred meters but i had a quick few steps and i could stop and start almost on the spot so i could almost i think i could go from flat out to, to stop almost in one stride so I, I therefore my ability to sort of change direction that if there was a physical attribute the most uh, that was probably it yeah
1: well let's move ahead then to the first of those grand finals you talked about 1971 against St Kilda what you're in your third season so can you remember how you felt leading in, into the grand final
0: well, it was different. There was no grand final parade back in uh, in that era. I think the grand final parade, like the build-up, the whole grand final week, which has become such a fantastic part of Melbourne, but there wasn't much of what you'd call the grand final week apart from the the game itself. Um, so you, so to a degree, I mean, it's the big game, it's the final game of the the year, but uh, you would have trained big crowd probably at training on the Thursday night. That was that used to be the old show day holiday, which yep. was often the Thursday before the grand final. But but basically, you you know, then you turn up and played the game. I I got to say my my memories are fairly vague of, of 1971. I mean I know the, you know we we were behind. Played St Kilda. We only lost two games for the year Hawthorne, So we would had an outstanding year, but just fell over the line in the semi final against St Kilda, and they played them again in the uh, in the grand final, and uh, and uh, we were behind and just come home and won in the in the last quarter. So I know the sort of the, the sequence of the of the game, but I can't picture myself in the middle of it if you know what I mean. Uh, yeah. it, it's all fairly vague. In uh, uh, from that point of view, of course, one of the things that is so memorable is again there was no post-game presentation of premiership medallions, and uh, David Park and our captain had to run up into the stand to collect the premiership cup. It wasn't actually even presented on the ground. So, so many things have changed in the uh, in the in the marketing of the game over the uh, over the decades since then.
1: It was a wet day and it was a tough day. I mean, it, I yes. think from it's talked about as one of the toughest games ever do, do you remember it that way i mean because that that is sort of the overwhelming thing people talk about it was it was close and tight but just so tough with with two teams that were really strong yeah
0: yeah, well, I mean, I always kind of my, my personal attitude was like you were going out off to war, really, when you went to play footy. I mean, that was the way that was my mental state, rightly or wrongly. And but I think there was uh, probably forty odd players that day had that same mental state. So uh, there was there was plenty of contact going on, incidentally, <laughs> and off the ball and around the place. So it was uh, it probably probably I'm not that was a game, of course, uh, we most remember because Peter Hudson yeah um, uh, had the chance to break Bob Pratt's record and of course he got Cowboy Neil, sort of thumped one early in the game, split his ear open so Harlow would have been off the ground concussed in the modern era but he stayed on and had two or three shots at goal to kick the 151st goal but didn't actually nail them which is, he was such an accurate kick so we kind of remember that part that was playing out at the same time as, you know, would we win? We end up winning by seven points but yeah Peter Hudson the great Peter Hudson kicked the kicked his 150th that day but uh, couldn't couldn't quite get the one uh, the through for the 151st so that was a that was a quite a memorable part of that occasion part of that grand final
1: it was and from other people's memories oh you, know, you were 20 points down at three quarter time now yeah according to a few don scott particularly it, john kennedy said just you know be competitive in the last quarter and keep fighting it out but scotty got you all together and said stuff that let's we want to win this do, do you actually remember that
0: Now, I can't say I remember that. You (laughs) often hear about a lot of things um, about uh, about what happens on grand final day, and it probably happened, but sometimes your mental space... In the middle of a game, you know, I mean you're only half listening to the coach, to be honest, because your mind's all over the place, you know, thinking things. It's hard to concentrate on words that are being said by by anyone. But uh, no, I uh, that that would have happened. He was a great competitor, uh, Don Scott. So, in fact, him him being, if, if I don't think we conceded defeat, and I don't think John had conceded defeat either. But we, you know, we were we were a few goals down, and yet you, you had to sort of find a way to. Uh, find a way to keep going, not get discouraged and certainly the last person who was going to get discouraged and stop competing his heart out was going to be Don Scott, so it doesn't surprise me that he's, uh, he might have been the one that uh, really tried to spark us up I guess before he we went to our positions for that final term. Bob Ketty went forward
1: kick four, you kicked a massive torpedo goal, do you remember, surely you remember your goal Wise now, kicks forward for the Hogs. a struggle going on Lee Matthews to get the free kick 20 points the difference Matthew is always a long way out
2: 65 yards there's Hudson in the goal square Neil behind him Lawrence in front of him
0: it's a big kick don't tell me he's put it through oh beautiful well I've seen it I've caught I've seen it but you know can I pitch a standing back there I know I, I think I won a free kick for a, a holding the ball and it uh, was no 50 meter line of course back in those days so I'm, I I'm not quite sure how far out I was but certainly outside drop punt distance so I unloaded and uh, and connected with the torpedo, which I think gave us the first goal of the uh, of the final quarter. And as you said, Bob Keddy went played more deep forward and uh, and and kicked four goals. So that was a critical part of a, a part of what was a really good last quarter. And actually, uh, you know, getting over. The line. You can rem- I can almost remember the moment you win. I mean, they're the things that stick in your mind the moment you know you've won. And in a close game like that was, well, it's the final siren. And I remember my, uh, my roving partner, Peter Crimmins, wasn't too far away from me. It was about a half forward flank um, up on the, uh, the main scoreboard end. And, uh, you know, when the siren went, you're seven points in front. And that moment, now you've accepted that you've won the grand final. I mean, they're, 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 they're such special moments. So I can, I can remember the emotion of that quite, uh, quite vividly.
1: And even as a really young man, because sometimes players sort of when they get older, they go, gee, I won one when I was young and I didn't didn't really appreciate it. Did you appreciate it, do you think?
0: Well, we appreciate it at the time because it's just an incredible moment. I mean, as I say, the grand final day is the cruelest day on the footy calendar Mm -hmm. for the obvious reasons. Like before the game, you never know what's going to happen. But, you know, three hours later, one team is going to be euphoric and the losing team is going to be down in the dumps badly, like really badly. So the extremities of emotions that you're going to feel at the end of grand final day... Is what makes it so unique in a, in a sense. That's what sports all about. But so so special that that few hours. So when you do win it again, it's like uh, it's like all your Christmases have, co- have come at once. And that uh, that 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 moment might for me you know, it might have only lasted uh, you know, a few minutes. That real euphoria. Then it was a, a self satisfaction and feel good about that you've got home. But that that moment uh, that gee you can't get enough of that winning moment on Grand Final day. Yeah.
1: Well, I guess fortunately you're able to get a bit more of it as the years went on and you mentioned Peter Crimmins and we'll, we'll get to him in more detail in a moment but how did you share that I think people are fascinated when they talk about small forwards these days and I know you played more forward later in your career H- yes. how did you share the roving with Peter Crimmins in those days
0: I think roughly speaking two-thirds on the like for me C- Crimo was the first rover for up and up until he got ill so for the first few years that we played so he, he would have been the on he would have started every quarter and he would have been the on-ball rover for about two-thirds of the game, and I'd be the on-ball rover for the other third. So it was probably basically about two-thirds third back in those days. And I guess when I became first rover, when, you know, when Krimo got ill and obviously tragically passed away, I, I, then I'd probably spend two-thirds on the ball start every quarter in the centre bounce. And, uh, you know, I, I didn't mind playing forward, so I... Uh, it didn't concern me to go off the ball and, and play as a, a permanent forward, but uh, they, that, that's probably how the, uh, the roving, you know, that, the, the term has actually disappeared from football, hasn't it now? Yeah, but it has. The, uh, the rover, the first rover and the forward pocket, second rover, yeah, about two thirds, third would have been how mostly it was uh, was played in, in terms of time on ball. And did
1: you actually play on the other rover? Did you consider you were playing on them in those days?
0: Not really, to be honest. I mean, I say so you, you, Barry Cable, um, Kevin Bartlett. I mean, Gary Wills, great players like that. You you shake hands at the start of the game, but you might, you seriously might not touch each other. For the rest of the game, because you're not, you're playing the this at the same position at the same time, Hutto. You're not, yep. You know, there, there's tagging roles where you're actually someone is actually playing on you uh, closely. I was never given a tagging role, so I never actually imposed that on on another <laughs> another player. But say that's like modern footy. Modern footy is the same, you know, players. I might be playing the same position at the same time, but they're not so much thinking, well, you know, when the opposition got the ball, I've got to find my opponent. I mean, theoretically, that's what's supposed to happen, but I'm not quite sure how much it, that played out in practice.
1: And John Kennedy, who was your coach through this period, obviously an incredible orator and a magnificent man.
0: What was your relationship with him and what, what were your thoughts on him as a coach? He was a school principal, actually, by profession. And our relationship as a coach and player was almost like the what the school principal would be with a student, to right. be honest. And it, it was very different. I mean, that was the era, of course, part-time footy. Everyone worked during the day, including the coach. And you would just train Tuesdays and Thursdays. They'd pick the team on uh, Thursday night. You wouldn't know the team. You go home from training and actually then listen to the uh, radio. Uh, I think it was 3DB back in that era with Lou Richards, and they would they would announce the teams. I in my first game, uh, I was actually found out I was playing when I was I was listening to league teams on the Thursday night. You wouldn't have necessarily have any contact in between that and turning up at the game to play. So. Coaching back in that era was fundamentals, really. You know, just trying to push the fundamentals all aside. And what John pushed and pushed and sold it so well was, if there's a basic thing that, that the team's got to come first and you as an individual have to be subservient to the team cause. Now, all coaches, all managers are saying that, but John lived that. He was Everything he did, everything he said... All his actions supported that particular concept. And I think that was one of those things that we all are young guys. You know, you've got big egos. Yeah, you yeah, know, you want to be a great player, all that kind of stuff. But I think John's influence just to the, the most basic thing you need in team sport. Yet ultimately, yet, and it's not a sacrifice, it's like an investment. If you invest yourself in the team cause, you'll get your rewards. And uh, I think that was the greatest lesson, apart from a few of the other things John often said, like injuries above the neck didn't matter. <laughs> don't know how that fits into the uh, whole concussion uh, thing these days, I, I wouldn't have thought. So if you, if you had a bloodied head, no one don't worry about that, you don't run on your head. But like humble in victory and sort of savage in defeat, that was the competitive mantra, I think, that uh, John Kennedy um, taught us or forced into us.
1: Was he the biggest influence on your career, at, both as a player and as a coach then?
0: Well, he certainly was at the time. I mean, he he was my coach for the first seven or eight years I played. John wasn't about positive reinforcement. John was very much what I would regard as on your back, you know. And I had John as my coach from, what, 17 to about 25. And I reckon there was a period in my early 20s, maybe when I was starting to play okay and, and you know, in the Victorian team, stuff like that, maybe I got a bit too big for my britches. And I started to think John Kennedy was on my case all the time. I almost had nightmares about him. But it's funny. Then a, a few years after that, you uh, started to realise, no, he was right. I was wrong. Right. <laughs> you know, so you, he's just one of those people. You can't have had anything to do with John Kennedy without having enormous admiration for him. But as I say, back in those days, it was almost like a life coach, not so much a football coach, as a life coach and a competition coach. Like what your whole attitude to competing was was what John uh, pushed. Not so much the intricacies of how to play the sport. Back in those days, you largely taught yourself.
1: You mentioned everyone had a job. What what was your job then?
0: Well, my first job, I worked for Dunlop Automotive in the early days uh, when I first left school, um, and then I uh, I uh, worked for Bill Patterson uh selling trucks in the right. early '70s, and then then after that, I had my own little retail sports business out at uh, Brandon Park Shopping Centre, which is just near Waverley, which I uh, I ran for five or five or six years. Uh, I probably played my best footy, to be honest, when I had had the store, and I want to look back and think, like I'd I'd be in there Friday night selling footy boots to the kids, you know, and uh, I'd go in Saturday morning and then my wife would pick me up like 11 o'clock and then I'd head off to the footy so I got to think it, it, it said to me keeping busy is better than sitting there stewing yep and I, I think that was something that sort of just happened that uh, that it was it was just sort of part of my life and part of my footy life for that uh, for that late 70s early 80s period.
1: 1975 the first of three and four years against North Melbourne. Um, you went down by 55 points. They were able to get their first flag under Barras. What was the pain of losing like to experience that on Grand Final Day?
0: Oh, well we knew a long way out because they thrashed us. I mean they uh, we won in 71 as you know then 72, 73, 74 we got beat in the preliminary final so we weren't far away. North beat us in, in, in that game. And then we, we got to the grand final in, in 75. And and, it, and people always say, when do you know you're going to win the premiership? And to me, at some stage late on grand final day, when you're far enough in front, you can't lose, right? Yeah. So basically, every and this will, year will be the same. Every, every time you go and you just don't know what's going to happen, we're in pretty good form. But North just blitzed us we just had a really bad day at the footy and north were really good my opponent Barry Cable you know again we might not have touched each other but we were direct opponents he was outstanding i had a shocker you know and, and north beat us easily but you know they beat us by about 10 goals so you, the, the the pain of losing was a was easy you know it wasn't just a one moment where all of a sudden the siren goes and you've lost by a point uh, we were we were fading badly and it to a degree it was blow the siren and get us out of here this is mercy you know give us the mercy rule or something so <laughs> That was a really bad day.
1: 76, you didn't kick very accurately. 13 goals, 22, but you won by 30 points. John Hendry, incidentally, kicked two goals, eight. Remember Uh, that, yeah. You had 21 and booted a goal. And your brother, Kelvin, kicked two goals, one. I imagine that would have been one of his great footy memories.
0: Oh, well, that, yeah, I mean, we, we pl- played alongside Kelvin at Hawthorne for uh, for a number of years. That was the only premiership we shared. I mean, the following year, I'm pretty sure it was, Kelvin did a bad ACL. But back in those days, they didn't even call it that. It was just a, you know, your, your knee was in plaster for six weeks after the, the surgery. So that sort of really wrecked his career it, when he was just getting in his prime. But uh, you, you, again, little little things that, that you can remember, He was uh, he, he wore number four. And I can I can visualise at one point there, you know, late in the game when we were pro- we we're in front, but you know you still some chance of losing, and I can remember him coming away from goal, doing the U turn, and I was back in the centre of the ground and seeing the big number four on his back, and he and he turned around and U turn and and kicked one of the goals in the last quarter that just just kept us clear so yeah, it was a great thing for the family particularly for the two boys for the two Matthew's boys to be you know playing alongside each other in a, a premiership so that added a, a, that was even more special of course but uh, you don't you don't need it that much to make it more special on grand final day again we we it wasn't one of those on the sirens we weren't far enough in front that you ever thought we had won until very late in the quarter but that was a, that was a great memory because as you said I was 9 in seventy one I was I was only still only a kid in the team. Uh, in, in seventy six I was I was sort of one of the one of the good players and I was in the prime of my career too. And particularly losing the previous year to actually you know get home on that particular day.
1: And it was obviously touched by sadness and the emotion of Peter Cremens and Yes. Do you remember the telegram that, that Kanga Kennedy read out before the game from Peter Cremens?
0: yeah no i can i can remember that yeah no there's not you know I, I find when i look back on my footy journey there's just glimpses of things that you can sort of empathize with oh yeah no, i can remember that i can feel that no i can i can remember that you yeah, the him, uh, john reading out the the telegram from uh, from peter no it was yeah well i mean the, the the previous year of course 75 was where he was all he was available for selection in that grand final but they just the, the selectors just, just didn't think he was ready to play. He, he'd been ill a lot of the year, and so there was a lot of controversy about whether he should should or shouldn't play in in the seventy five grand final. But of course, he'd been really ill uh, through seventy six, so he, he hadn't been around the sort of the club uh, very much, and you, and you knew that he was in he was in a he's in a really bad way. But when he died, he died the week after it, and it, it always. It's always like a surprise, even though you know he's very ill when, when finally he, uh, he passed away. But that photograph of, um, of half a dozen of the players uh, around his place with the Premiership Cup is that's, that's a photo that will live in everyone's memories forever.
1: And how, how did you deal with his death? I mean, for a young man to, to see that, it must have been pretty confronting at that age.
0: Well, yes, I, yes. I'm, I mean, I guess I, uh, you know, later on in the uh, in my Collingwood coaching, uh, yeah. when Darren Mullane got killed in in the car accident. I mean, that was um, early October, not during a season, but nevertheless, that the tragedy of having a, a someone in the prime of their life, a 25 year old, you know, dying Peter from the cancer, and but Darren Mullane from the car accident. I mean, Darren Mullane's of course, was sudden, but uh, but Peter's was, uh, you know, you, was you sort of knew it was happening. You knew that he was, was fading away, but I I guess unfortunately Unfortunately, that's happening all too often in the general community.
2: I think... Just what we would probably call now, just a single-minded aptitude or approach to things. Wasn't the greatest trainer in the sense he didn't like the running part of it, but anything which had contests, we used to play a lot of minor games and things I used to play with our players, etc. He was terrifying because he any, anything that had a ball in it and it was competitive in nature, he was just single-minded and totally focused. And I think that's why... You know, Later on, he played a lot of times deliberately, but he cleaned up blokes later on because they actually stood between him and what he wanted to do. And he did it unmercifully. He was the most single-minded player. And I think for that reason, Anthony, I think was all the players, I mean, I'd rather watch Ted Witt and some of the current day players. But if you ask me honestly now, who would be the first person that you have seen play or have played with, who would you pick in your side? And without hesitation, I would pick Lee matches. I think he had the capacity to do it and most of all to do it in games when it was required. He had a sense and feel for the game might be in balance or whatever. I know a few players, probably three or four I could count on my hand, who had the capacity, knowing the moment, were able to dig deep and produce the action or act or whatever it is that, that was able to get the game going in our direction. I just totally and utterly single-minded and focused on the ball now, if you played him in practice matches I did or you played as an opponent against him, it must have been terrifying stuff, I would have thought, for most of it.
1: 1978, David Parkin now is coached, the last of the North Melbourne Hawthorne Grand Finals. You had... Just the twenty-eight disposals and four goals three. So the Norm Smith Medal came a year too late, didn't it? By the look of things.
0: <laughs> yes. Yeah, well, they went they went back and awarded a Norm Smith Medal. I think there's someone did Dipper win it or someone or anyway. But oh, I did, I, 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 I thought they went back and I thought they they awarded them in retrospect. They might anyway, have. Yeah, I don't know how official they were. There, there was none of that on the day. But uh, no, uh, when well, no, I had a good day. I mean, I I had some good finals. I played in seven grand finals and didn't think I was exceptional in in any of them. Really, but that was probably the best grand final I played, I think, actually. No, I, I did okay that day. So we, again, North Melbourne, we, as you've just, from 74, 75, 76, 77, 78, we put each other out of the competition. Like, we right. we beat North in uh, in 76 and 78. They beat us in 75, and they put us out, of, out in the preliminary finals in 74 and 77. So... The, uh, the North Melbourne and Hawthorne had that incredible rivalry at the time of, of getting to the last part of the season and then uh, playing knockout games against each other. So finally, getting it, getting one up when I think 77 was probably the best year I played. But again, we got beaten in the preliminary final. I had a shocker. Barry Cale had a really good game. You know, you've you got to be able to form, perform on the day. And that's why I'm always awestruck for the players who just turn it on on Grand Final Day or in big finals because under that pressure to produce your very best, I mean, that, that is something I admire immensely.
1: So have you been awestruck, to use those words, by Dustin Martin and what he's been able to do in the last few years?
0: Yes, for that reason, I mean, Dusty's been a very good player, like during the seasons. But what he's done late in the seasons, on Grand Final day, and even in the finals, so uh, I think they've, the coaches now have the Garyears Medal, I think they call it, which is they so they vote on all the finals and get a player of the finals from from that I, slightly unfair I guess because it might be a, a one player might play a different number of games but the fact that Dusty has been able to play so well the Norm Smith medals is the ultimate when you think of it to be able to you, you know you got to get to the grand final first yeah but to be able to get to the grand final and play really well on grand final day and, and Dusty's the poster boy for that right now and probably has been to be honest in almost in my time in footy
2: In the years from the 81 or 82 through to 85, I thought he, in that period, was the most dominant player in the competition. I know he didn't win ground loads and that's the rates that some people did, but have a look at his record in terms of best and first at the Hawthorne Football Club in a team that had some of the better players that I've ever had the privilege of playing with or coaching against in a side that was clearly over that decade and he was the best player during that period. So I think his record as an individual in a team that was so dominant just highlights the point of how good he was.
1: 83, 84, 85, the rivalry turned to uh, Essendon, of course, as you came towards the end of your career. You smashed them in 83, six goals, five, you kicked from 16 disposals, 57 points up at halftime, and then 84 and 85. It was really like it was the changing of the guard, wasn't it, by, by three-quarter time in 84 as they came from, from four goals down to win. So that that must have been a, a fantastic rivalry as well, and it, it was a, all in brawl, but there was some great footy had played over those three years.
0: Yeah, it was Yeah, what happened over the th- I remember in, in in 83 I mean the, my my really clear recollection I mean I often spoke about uh, and I've quoted as uh, like yeah okay you'll win if you're more goals in front than there is minutes to go yes but now, now that plays out if there's a few minutes to go not not if there's a, a quarter to go but in in the at three quarter time in 1983 we walked to our positions I looked up at the uh up at the scoreboard we were, I think it was 83 points in front and I thought to myself that's fifteen. That's seventeen. Don't think they're going to kick seventeen goals. <laughs> so I did not touch the ball in the last quarter. I don't know whether I would lost concentration. I had a little bit of pubis at the time. So, but either way, <laughs> I remember it was just waiting for the final siren. I was captain that year, so the the honour of actually being able to, as captain, go up and receive the premiership cup was, you know, was just incredible. And I guess I had, in a sense, a whole quarter to <laughs> to get ready for the for the end of the game. the medallion and the Premiership Cup for 1983 to the captain of the Hawthorne Football Club, Lee Matthews. That was remarkable in, uh, in 1983. And in 84, we were in front, but Eston ran over the top of us in the last quarter. In a sense, that's the one that, got away for me because right. we were a few goals in front at three-quarter time but I think Eston kicked nine goals in the in the last quarter and then by probably by 1985, yeah, Essendon were getting better and we seemed to be deteriorating and uh, what happened in 83 where we won by a big margin, well, Eston virtually did that to us so they uh, they were in front all day and we thought we had a pretty energetic good first quarter and I think we are 20 points behind or something so uh, they were a fantastic team uh, that year, Essendon and so that was the, my final game we'll yeah that walked off the field for the last time in the in the losing grand final
1: Lee Matthews being carried off the ground, almost in tears I
0: think, 340 games and receiving a huge round of applause even from the Essendon fans here now as Matthews makes his way to the dressing room for the final time. When you play a competitive um, your contact sport and I think when you walk off the field for the last time it's like part of your dies because that really intense competitive physical contact aggression that you probably need to to play the game, or I thought I needed to play it, play it well. Well, you don't need that anymore because that part of your life's gone. So it's always like all of a sudden, bang! On the morning of the grand final, you're still a footballer, and then five or six hours later, you've not only lost the grand final, but you're no longer a footballer. So it's a very sad moment for me.
1: So I mean, you don't strike me as a as a bloke who would be who would cry that often, but you were emotional then. So. Was that it? Was that what you were feeling? And as to why, as you were, as you were carried off, that was as you said, like part of you was yeah.
0: disappearing. Yeah, it's like a morning. Like all of a sudden, it's the it's the uh, realisation, and therefore the the morning that uh, my football life has just died. And I, I think I think that was the sort of the the tears when I when I came off the field were more about that than losing. I think it was just the emotion of what you'd wanted to do your whole life is play football. That was a, that was certainly the thing that I wanted to do most in my life, but that was now finished and finished forever. That's where the tears came from.
1: Did you struggle with not being a player from then on? And, and like I've even spoken to players that, you know, 30 years later that still dream of, you know, they still wake up in the middle of the night and, they're, and they're, they're back playing again. Did you ever struggle with the fact that your career was
0: over? well not really because I I, I was gone my, physically I was gone I think in the middle of 1985 I think I said to uh, Alan Jeans great Alan Jeans I mean we talk about coaches I, I had John Kennedy David Parkin and Alan Jeans three icons of that that, that coached me for my whole career so Alan Jeans was coaching at the time I said to Jeansy halfway through 1985 I think, think this should probably be my last year he said Yep. Okay. So I kind of, uh, I mean, I really, I was only, I was barely getting a game by the end of 1985. So yeah, the choice was there was no choice for me to play on. But the, the other thing where I've been really lucky in in my footy life is that one door closes, another door opens. So I, I'd already been approached by Collingwood um, in late in '85, and I said, well, let's let's talk after the, my playing days are finished. And uh, and so straight away, Collingwood uh, asked me to. Was going to be part of the succession plan. Bob Rose was coach. Was going to continue in 1986. I would be assistant coach and take over from Bob at the end of 1986. And Bob Rose was part of the people who asked me to do it. So it was no secret. So that was that was the plan. Huddo. So I I went from playing to something. I mean, I had, I did, I spent six months as an assistant coach. And back in that era, when it was like part-time footy and players were still working jobs, i was still not sure what an assistant coach was supposed to do. <laughs> uh, so we were noticed. you full-time? I was full-time. Bob was still and he had a retail business, so he was still working. So, as history would tell us, uh, Hutto, after round three of 1986 at Collingwood, Collingwood lost the first three games, and again things stick in your mind. I got a phone call about 7:30 the following morning. Picked up the phone, it's Bob Rose, and he just said simple words, "Lee, I think it's time you took over."
1: So the MCG story for the great Lee Matthews was far from over. And in the next episode, which is coming soon, we'll hear all about his coaching triumphs with both Collingwood and Brisbane. Be sure to join us then. Of course, a big thanks to Lee for sharing his wonderful moments and to the legendary coach David Parkin for his insights into his former teammate. As always, we greatly appreciate the use of the wonderful audio from AFL Digital. Don't forget, if you're enjoying the series, please subscribe and leave us a review. And as different as it is, we hope you enjoy the build-up to this year's AFL Grand Final as we look forward to when we can see you once again at the gym.